You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. That concludes our worship service. Just kidding. <laughs> I decided to do that first because uh, I didn't want to crush the uh, Lord's Supper time to just five minutes at the end after we're, we're almost done with the service and I'm rushing through the sermon. I'd rather have my sermon uh, end early rather than end the time of our uh, communion with the Lord uh, early. Well, we're continuing to go through Acts, and today we'll be talking about good old-fashioned Holy Ghost power. How many of us remember the Holy Spirit being referred to as the Holy Ghost? Ever heard of that before? Ever heard good old-fashioned holy roller preaching? especially in the Southern uh, African Methodist Episcopalian Church. Have you heard of that before? Well, it's, it, it's something. It, it really livens, livens you up. If, if not spiritually, it livens you up physically because you start listening really hard at what they're, they're saying. And the, uh, that's right, brother. And, uh, man, when they preach, and, and it's, it's like a, a musical song. starts slow, and the rhythm gets higher and higher. And the Holy Ghost is being preached, and you're just woken up, and you're like, you know, I don't even remember what he said, but, but I'm awake. I'm awake in church today. It's Sunday. This is church. The Holy Spirit is here, right? Is the Holy Spirit really here, though? Is the Holy Spirit really here? And we're going to find that, uh, again, the Holy Spirit is one of the main characters in the book of Acts. Well, let's do some scripture reading, because this is the passage that we're going to go through. Acts chapter 13 verses 4 to 12. I'll read the even verses, and if I can have the congregation read the odd. The two of them, Barnabas and Saul, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, and sailed from there to Cyprus. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now, all of us Christians want power from the Holy Spirit. How many of us have prayed, fill me with the Holy Spirit, just this past week? Fill me with power from the Holy Spirit, this past week or this past month. We pray this when we're tired, when we feel frustrated that life isn't going our way, and we want to do it God's way. 
Or when we want to do a work for God and we want it done in a spiritual way. And so legitimately, we pray from power from on high. We pray that God would fill us with his Holy Spirit. Now, personally, I've experienced this filling with the Holy Spirit many times. I want to say that already, if you are a believer, you are already by default filled or baptized with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But as we read in the Bible, in the New Testament, and especially in Acts, there is a special filling of the Holy Spirit of power at different points in the church community and also in in Christian individual lives that gives them power to do something special and unique. And we're going to see that that power is given and overflows in this uh, uh, certain circumstance. Now, I experienced this in particular at a Youth Summer Missions project uh, quite a while ago when I was still in college. I remember at that time, we were ministering to this church in White River, and there were 30 of us. Downstairs was the sanctuary and the kitchen area and the cafeteria. Upstairs were the Sunday school rooms. Well, at this particular missions trip, uh, there was a kid that had recently just been physically abused. You can see the, the pen marks on his chest and the cigarette butt marks just recently given on his body. We don't know whether it was his brother that did that. We don't know whether it was his parents that did that, but he was being abused in his family. And a group of sisters started crying about this and wanted to pray about this. And so during free time at night, we had free time back there, back then after 9.30, after uh, the, our evening evangelistic revival service and after the shao yeah with uh, all the, the good dim sum that we had over there, they decided to go upstairs to the Sunday school room and spend some time in prayer. So about three or four of them went up there, and they prayed, and, and they cried. And as it is during the, these occasions, all of our personal belongings were upstairs. And so a lot of us, being youth, we want to go up there to get our cards. So we come back down, we can play poker or whatnot. Back then, Mafia wasn't popular. We didn't know what Mafia was. We just played other poker games, Big Two, you know, those other, other poker games. And so people went up there. To, to their backpacks to get cards or other games down. And they heard crying, and they heard people praying. And what was interesting, the people who went up there, these youth, they didn't come back down. It's like, what was going on? You know, what, we're, we're going to play big two, right? Why aren't they coming down with, with uh, the, the cards? They stayed up there, and then what had happened was that they started either joining them in prayer or forming their own prayer groups. And this happened as more people went up there to see what was going on. They didn't come back down. And so this was amazing because, first of all, these are youth, okay? Like, when it comes time to free time, they already prayed. They already worked really hard during the day. They did their door-to-door evangelism. They already hung out for VBS with all the kids. They want to play. They don't want to pray, right? We already did the prayer. They want to play. So when they go up there and they don't come down and they pray, this is significant. Also, what I found out afterwards when I went up there they started praying for the same thing. They started praying for this kid who hadn't been abused, for the revival of this town called White River, and for the evangelism of the entire city and the Apache people there. And they just started praying, praying, and they started crying also. So I went up there because I wanted to see what was going on, because now you can actually hear the crying up there, because not only did the first group cry, but everyone was, like, crying. And I went there, up there, and, and I was looking at the other pastor 
who was, who was along with me, partnered with me in this trip, and we were looking at each other like, this is kind of strange, because now there are six different small groups of prayer warriors, most of them youth, mind you, that are crying really loud, very strangely, and also praying at the same time. And we're looking at you like, so should we join them, or should we sort of just be here and, and observe and make sure things don't get out of hand, right? And so we chose the latter. But almost all 30 of us were up there. The only people that weren't up there were, were the kitchen crew that was downstairs washing pots and pans and cleaning up the place after a long days of work. And what was amazing was that although we were praying for this kid and for the town of White River, the side effect of that result was also that there was a great revival amongst all of us that went there. That night was a turning point in the missions trip where everyone, I'm not saying that we weren't serious about the missions trip before, but after that point, we became very, very serious about the missions trip. We cared about each individual person that came to our group rather than just them just seeing them as a a giant group of Apache kids that came. We wanted to get to know them, and we wanted to evangelize them and make sure that they knew the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that only happened as a result of a direct, what I interpret as a filling of the Holy Spirit that happened to us. It truly was a remarkable work um, of the Holy Spirit. And... What was also amazing is that this happened for over 30 minutes. By the time I got up there, it, was, it had already been, I think, about 20 minutes, and that happened for 30 more minutes, meaning that it was a 15-minute prayer session. Now, for some of us who are prayer warriors, that's like, well, that's not a lot. You know, I pray for three hours. Come on, 15 minutes, you know. But remember, I must remind you, these are middle school and high schoolers. When's the last time you saw a group of middle schoolers and high schoolers and some college students pray for 50 minutes and cry in their prayers too? Raise your hand if it was within the last five years. I don't remember many times that happening. And so this was truly a remarkable work of the Holy Spirit. And no, it wasn't because we were charismatic. We were all Southern Baptists. So we we actually... Uh, many of us were what, what you would call cessationists. We actually didn't believe that these things happened anymore, but it happened. And so we just praise God um, for that. But there are things that we would wish could happen in our spiritual lives or in the lives of other people's spiritual lives that cannot happen unless there's a special move of the Holy Spirit upon them, a move that is mighty. Every day, do we pray for that power from the Holy Spirit for our personal lives, for our families, and for our church? Ask yourself, when was the last time that you prayed for a filling of the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit to empower you? And if not, then we cannot expect our Christian lives or the lives of our church as Chinese Christian Church of Thousand Oaks to do great things for the Lord. We can do a lot of things for the Lord, with our own physical flesh, with the money and financial resources that we have, because we have great financial resources, and many of us are young and strong. We have bright ideas. But if it's not, if it is without the power of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit, it will not be a great supernatural work, a work that we will see happen in this passage, and also works like the ones that I saw when I went to missions 
um, back in college. Now, the church in Acts was born and raised and led by the power of the Holy Spirit. For example, the church was born by the Holy Spirit in Pentecost in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2. The church was raised by the Holy Spirit through the apostles and the Christians after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 to 6. The church was led by the Holy Spirit time and time again through the apostles and the Christians in its evangelistic work. Acts chapter 6, all the way to 13, where we are right now, and then beyond all the way to uh, chapter 27. It was the Holy Spirit who chose and sent Barnabas and Saul for their missions trip in this current Acts passage. Now, I want to remind us of the effective spread of that first Holy Spirit-inspired gospel message by the Apostle Peter back in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 47. And then afterwards, I'll tell you why I'm including this. Even though this is not Acts chapter 2, we're talking about Acts chapter 13. So before any Christian missionary was officially called by the church to go out beyond Jerusalem to do missions, for example, the church in Antioch, which, called by the Holy Spirit, sent Barnabas and Saul out to do the missions work that we're going to see right now, there have been unofficial missionaries, both Christian and, yes, non-Christian, who were already sharing about the gospel of Jesus, sometimes unaware that they were even missionaries. Now, what do I mean, I mean by this? I mean this. Remember the 3,000 people that believed in Peter's message in Acts chapter 2? Remember even those who didn't believe but heard Peter's message? Because, obviously, not everyone there actually believed in the gospel that Peter preached. But many of them did. We know that 3,000 did. The question is, where were many of them from? And where did many of them go back to afterwards with what they heard? And so in Acts chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, it says this, Now there there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. So every nation under heaven was there to hear this story of the gospel. And then he gives specifically what nations they're from. And not only that, in verse 11, the first part, there were both Jews and converts to Judaism meaning that these were people from families that were 100% Jewish or families that were not 100% Jewish, but these were the people that converted to Judaism from their original nationality, meaning that they have a lot of non-Christian contacts or non-Jewish contacts as well. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Now, where are these places? If you look, here's a little map that describes where they all are. Pretty much the entire Roman Empire, um, southeast portion of it at least, all the way to the Parthian Empire uh, to the east. A spanse, an expanse of thousands of miles. And this is before Saul was even commissioned and Barnabas was even commissioned to go share the gospel. This was before Philip and Stephen even shared of the gospel in, the, in those chapters, Acts chapters 5, 6, and 7. 
the gospel has already been spreading in an unofficial way by just word of mouth, people sharing what they saw happen all across the Roman Empire for thousands of miles through word of mouth from the time of Pentecost. Now, the reason why I share this is because it's, it helps us answer two questions that many of us have by the time we come to Acts chapter 13, verses 4 and on. Why, by almost halfway through Acts, Acts 13, has the gospel not even gone further than Israel's adjacent neighboring countries? If you look at where Antioch is, and if you look at where Seleucia and Cyprus is, you're like, man, they, they still haven't really left the map yet. You know, I mean, I see Cyprus and I see Antioch. Every time I look at a map of, of Israel and its surrounding areas, this gospel is supposed to be powerful, right? The Holy Spirit is supposed to be powerful, right? Why hasn't it gone further than this? It's already been 13 chapters. It's already the year 45 AD. What's going on here? Well, the gospel has already spread thousands of miles in an unofficial capacity. Now the gospel is spreading in a very official missiological way through people that have been discipled and through the apostles. A second question is, why is it that some places Barnabas and Saul travels to, there are either already Christians there, or if there are not, they respond very positively to them. And when you understand the spread of the gospel unofficially already post-Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, you realize, well, it's probably because these were Christian circles and groups that were formed as a result of that post-Pentecost experience the Christians that were there went back to their home countries and then they started meeting together, even without the knowledge of the Jerusalem church. And also it explains why sometimes that Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas and other missionaries have an easier time than others sharing the gospel to different places. Perhaps that place has been already pre-saturated with the gospel so that it's easier for them to hear about it. They want to hear more because they have heard about it before. It just doesn't really say so in Acts. But that is a possibility. And now we see the Holy Spirit officially moving two people to do this work in a very direct and official way. We see the Holy Spirit moving Barnabas and Paul to their first missions trip. And this is found in Acts chapter, sorry, as it, it, I put there two, especially Acts chapter 13, verses 4 to 6a. The two of them, Barnabas and Saul, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. Now here's a map of where they went so you can see visually um, what was going on. You see Antioch on the top right over there. Then they traveled a short way to the port city of Seleucia. And then they journeyed by boat to the port city of Salamis, east of Cyprus, went through the island westward, and then stopped at Paphos. Well, they stopped at the point of we're going to stop in this uh, account of Acts by uh, verse 12. Now, notice that Luke does not record that it is the Antioch church that sent them. But instead... It's the Holy Spirit that is recorded as sending them. Again, when we read Acts, we have to read it not in view of what is the church doing. I mean, we could view it that way, but the writer of Acts, Luke, is trying to show us that we have to see the church growing 
by way of what the Holy Spirit is moving the church to do, both corporately and also individually. And we're going to see that in this passage. Right? We know, again, that God the Holy Spirit is also a main character and mover in Acts. And again, this causes us to ask that question. Do we individually and as a church see the Holy Spirit's call on our lives when we partake in evangelism and missions efforts? Or are we doing it out of our own flesh? Ask yourself that question again. You know, when you're at work, when you're thinking of going to San Telmo or the Indian Reservation, when you're at school with the non-Christian friends that you have, do you pray for the Holy Spirit's guidance? Do you wait for the Holy Spirit's call? Or do you just do things out of your own physical and mental efforts? Is it a spirit-driven evangelism and discipleship, or is it a fleshly-driven evangelism and discipleship? Now, Barnabas and Paul share the gospel at the different Jewish synagogues from Cyprus, says eastern city of Salamis, to the western city of Paphos. Right? Since, since Cyprus is Barnabas' hometown, he would know where all of these or most of the synagogues were, and so he would introduce Saul to these synagogues, go there and share the gospel. Now, this is a 106-mile east-to-west evangelistic trips, and there are also different towns in between those two uh, big cities. For example, uh, Trimetheus, Citium, Amathus, Syrium, and Palaipaphos. Now, although Saul or what is popularly more known as Paul, is remembered as a missionary to the Gentiles, he is still proclaiming the gospel to the Jews first in their synagogues. Now, we have to remember that Christ's call for him included both Gentiles and also Israel. Remember back in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, when he was called? Jesus says this, This man, Saul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Another thing that's important to remember as we go through this passage is that John Mark, who is the Mark that is the author of the Gospel of Mark in our New Testament, also accompanies Barnabas and Paul as their missionary assistant. You can see that in uh, uh, verse 5c. Now, this is important to remember in the story of Acts because it will be a cause of future drama between Barnabas and Saul, uh, Barnabas and Paul and then we can draw lessons from it, but that's from later. Now then we see this happening when it comes to the Holy Spirit's movement in this passage. The Holy Spirit first moves Barnabas and Saul to do the work of missions, and then they decide to do it in Cyprus, which is a good strategy. That's a place where they know it's, it's, it's a place that's near, that needs the gospel, and also that's Barnabas's hometown, so they have... Um, an advantage there, right? And then the next thing that we see the Holy Spirit doing is, it, is the Holy Spirit gives individual power to Saul in order to overcome um, Elimus, the sorcerer. And this is from Acts uh, chapter 13, verses 6b to 12. It says this, There at Paphos they meet a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus the sorcerer, for this is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. When's the last time someone told you that? You're a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that's right. Wow, that's a pretty harsh rebuke. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness overcame him, came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now, at the end of their mission's journey to Cyprus, they encounter, finally, resistance. And this resistance to the gospel was in the form of a Jewish sorcerer or magician named Bar-Jesus, also known as Elimus. You can see that in verses 6 to 8 that we just read. And what um, this person was, was a Jewish person who combined Jewish belief, Old Testament beliefs, with also magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. And that was sin, because in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 to 12, that's called idolatry. Right? You're not supposed to get into sorcery. You're not supposed to get into witchcraft. You're not supposed to get into divination and soothsaying as a Jewish believer in the true creator God. But this person did. And Elimus, which literally means in Aramaic, a magician, was most likely the spiritual advisor for Sergius Paulus, the Roman governor or proconsul of the island. Proconsuls were one-year term Roman governors. Um, in the NIV, it says that he was his attendant. So he probably was um, the spiritual advisor for this governor, Sergius Paulus. In the ancient world, it was not uncommon for political leaders to have spiritual counselors, or otherwise known as magicians, soothsayers, prophets, or astrologers, help them make major decisions. And Rome was not an exception. So, for example, Emperor Tiberius had an Alexandrian astrologer named Claudius Thrasyllus and a magician named Tiridates. Emperor Nero had many astrologers, including one named Balbillus. Caesar Augustus consulted multiple soothsayers and magicians frequently. Even in Israel, the many kings had prophets of God. For example, Jonah. Now, what many of these leaders did not know, do not know, is this fact, is that if this person, this prophet, is not prophesying from creator God, Yahweh, then the origin of their power to prophesy, to divine, to use magic, the origin of their power is demonic and evil. And we see this expressed because now you have two people contending against each other. So now we have Elimus a prophet of Satan, going against Saul, a prophet of God. Because the Roman governor he serves, Sergius Paulus, who had obviously by now heard of what Barnabas and Paul were doing on the island, wanted to hear of this gospel of theirs. And the question is, who's going to win? Now, here's a side note. The existence of this Sergius Paulus was already found to be true on a boundary stone in Rome in 1887. So, those of you who are wondering, you know, is this guy even real? It's already been confirmed through archaeology that he actually uh, existed. Now, the reasons why Elimus was threatened was probably because, number one, his position was being threatened. If Sergius Paulus becomes a Christian, he's going to be discipled, and then the way he's going to be discipled is that 
you're not supposed to use spiritual advisors that are not of God. And so, therefore, he would be let go, and he would lose his position, and all the benefits of his position, he would lose his employment. Another reason why is probably because there's a natural spiritual enmity between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Now, Elimus, who is fueled by Satan, whose power comes from Satan, and he probably was demon-possessed, in order to be able to do magic and sorcery correctly, you need to have a spirit possess you in order so that you can speak words of knowledge from that spirit because you wouldn't be able to do that, naturally speaking, to know things that you don't even know anything about from your background. That now here's two representatives from the kingdom of God entering into the sphere of the source of evil for the entire uh, province of Cyprus. And there's going to be this enmity. There's going to be this, this hostility. There's going to be this spiritual warfare. And that's something that I think all of us need to remember when we're doing evangelism, when we're doing discipleship, when we're doing mission work. Some of us complain that it's hard. Some of us complain that they're not doing the things that we want them to do. They're not listening to me. They're arguing with me. They're debating with me. That's normal. It is very rare that in Acts and in the Bible that without the power of Christ, without the power of the Holy Spirit, that there is no arguments. Sometimes with the influence of the Holy Spirit, you're led to an argument because what happens is that when you actually have an argument, it's showing that they're actually understanding what you're saying and they're threatened by it. So if you have someone who's debating with you about the merits of the gospel, they don't, want, they don't believe your testimony when you, you told them that Jesus changed your life, Consider that normal. That's part of evangelism because there's spiritual warfare going on. They don't want to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior because they want to be the Lord and Savior of themselves. And if they've already dedicated their lives to another Lord, another Savior, let's say they're Taoist, or let's say they're Buddhist, or of another religion, let's say they're Hindus and they're serious about it, they absolutely will not want to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, because what that would mean was that would be that they would have to give up the power that they have right now and turn their lives to another God. Now, Elimus's fear that Governor Paulus would convert is substantiated by the fact that Luke calls the governor an intelligent man. Have you, have you ever thought, when you read through this passage, how particular that is? Like, why does it say he's an intelligent man? Because here's the interesting thing. I went through the entire book of Acts trying to look to see if Luke calls anyone else intelligent. And guess what? He doesn't. Which means that everyone else in the book of Acts, including himself, he thinks they're dumb. That's a joke. Come on, you could just laugh at that. Come on, okay, that's a joke. Ha, 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 all right? Of course he doesn't think that they're dumb. This is the only person that he says that he's an intelligent man. So there's only two ways to interpret this. Either he actually thinks that this guy is super intelligent and more intelligent than everyone that is already intelligent in the book of Acts, or Luke is using a linguistic device to tell us something poignant in the context of this passage. And we find that it is the latter. He's actually using this to show that most likely, if Paul or Saul and Barnabas get their way, he's going to convert to Christianity. Because he's been hearing all of this thing that, these things that have been going on in the entire island when these two people came here 
sharing the word of God, sharing the gospel, and he wants to know what this is. And Elimus knows this guy's an intelligent man. If they get their way, he's probably going to convert to Christianity. So I need to go against them in front of Sergius Paulus so that that doesn't happen. Right? Now, <clears throat> Barnabas and Saul meet with proconsul Sergius Paulus, shares about their missions trip, about Jesus Christ with them, and this is what happens next. But Elimus the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. Okay, and we read this before, all the way down through verse 11. Second part of verse 11. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And also, please note, that before this dramatic speech inspired by the Holy Spirit, Luke also records this interesting thing. But Elimus the sorcerer opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was called Paul. And you have to ask yourself as you read this, why the mention of a name change here? This didn't happen any time between Acts chapter 1 all the way to Acts chapter 13. This is the first time it happens. And also, it's significant because from this point on, all the way to the end of Acts, he's never called Saul anymore. He's only referred to as Paul. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. And we have to understand that in the ancient Near East, whenever there's a name change, there always is two implications to that. Number one, a name change means that there's a change in ownership. And number two, a name change means that there's a change in direction or a change in destiny. And we see that because remember, back to Acts chapter 9, verse 15, when Christ called Saul to this ministry, he gave him this goal. This man Saul is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. At this time, he was mainly only preaching to Gentiles. But now... He's starting to preach to also Israel. Or he's only been preaching to to Israel, but now he's starting to preach to Gentiles. That although he was already doing this by themselves, in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, this is when he officially starts doing it. Okay, This is sort of his Clark Kent to Superman moment where he is no longer Saul, a missionary to the Jews, but he is now Paul, God's chosen instrument to the Gentiles also. For example... Sergius Paulus. But not only this, but here's the significant thing about this passage, or one of the many significant things about this passage, is that before Paul even speaks a word, he is filled with the Holy Spirit and fulfills a prophecy mentioned by Jesus made just 13 years before. And this was the prophecy. In Luke chapter 21, verses 12 to 15, Jesus says, but before all of this, meaning the end times, They will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors. And all all on account of my name. This will result in you being witnesses to them. You see, Jesus had a plan for this. right? He actually tells them beforehand that this is what's going to happen. Because then you can share the gospel with these people. So 
they being chained or put into prison was part of Jesus' plan. We think that it's bad. Jesus sees that this is good because the gospel would be able to get to people that it would not have been able to get to if they weren't put into jail or prison. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Don't think by your own abilities how you're going to defend yourself. I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. And who is I? It's Jesus. But then remember at the end of Luke and in the beginning of Acts, Jesus then transfers his power over to the Holy Spirit to then fill the disciples. And basically, the work of the ministry of Jesus Christ is now continuing through the Holy Spirit. And we see this very prophecy come true in the next few verses where Elimus and Satan gets owned by Paul and the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, So this is the Holy Spirit speaking through, Saul, through, through Paul, through Saul, who is now Paul. You are a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. And immediately the mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. It was the Holy Spirit who defeated Elimus through filling Paul's voice with the spiritual word of rebuke. And for those of you who are sort of sad that this happened to Elimus, don't be, because it actually says in verse 11 that this would only happen for a time. Okay, so it's only temporary, this blindness. And hopefully, when that time is over, he would also, from this experience, become a Christian himself. But we don't know because Acts doesn't tell us. Now again, this part of the passage challenges us. Again, we must ask ourselves, are we depending on the Holy Spirit for the missions work and the evangelism and the discipleship that we're doing? Especially when there are spiritual elements that are involved. For example, Elimus was a sorcerer, for that is what his name means. He was conjuring up evil spirits in order to be able to prophesy the future, to help Sergius Paulus make decisions in his administrative affairs on the province of Cyprus. For us, it would be like using modern-day Ouija boards, tarot cards, or going to the psychic in order to have our future read for us. For us, it would be like if we were part of um, a Buddhist family or a traditional Taoist family. And in their families, there are rooms dedicated to Taoist or Buddhist gods. There's a lot of spiritual warfare going on there. And you want to reach them for Christ. And they are adamantly against you. They're okay with you going to church. But once you say you want to get baptized, they are adamantly against you. Even after you're 18 and you're an adult, they're still adamantly against you. Pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit and being led by the Holy Spirit in order to be victorious over them, in order to overcome them. Because possibly they are not just being empowered by their physical flesh or empowered by their Asian culture or whatever culture they come from. They are being empowered by the devil himself or by demons 
which are surrounding those areas of idol worship? Do we pray every day for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit on our life for Christ's service? Or, again, are we depending on our own flesh? And if we want to be successful in our evangelism, especially when there are evil spirits at work, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in a great way in order to succeed. And what was the result of Elimus being supernaturally rebuked and blinded um, in front of the governor, Sergius Paulus? When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. And I hope that as a result of you being filled with the Holy Spirit and having these dramatic encounters, possibly dramatic encounters, that people will see and that they will then come to know Christ, the true the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you, Lord, for this passage. We thank you because uh, we see that there needs to be a spiritual movement, a spiritual leading, and a spiritual filling in order for us to be successful in our evangelism and ministry. And this spirit cannot be any other spirit than the Holy Spirit, Um, that you have given us when we believed in you. And so, Father, I pray for all of us. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and that you would lead us with your spirit. Help us to depend on you so that when that time comes, when we are challenged in the faith and your Holy Spirit guides us, we'd be ready, that we'd be spiritually doing missions and spiritually doing evangelism rather than just doing it by our own mind our own flesh. Father, guide us with your Holy Spirit to be able to speak words from you rather than just from ourselves in order to impact the lives of those people around us. Thank you, Father, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.